It almost felt like I was taking my healthcare providers through a vetting process as I was taking my mom into the office because I know long-term that is what is going to help her heal the most is when you're understood the most. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality healthcare through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and this season of our podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Zero, the end of prostate cancer. We will build upon the Promoting Health Equity in Cancer Care virtual workshop hosted by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, which was co-chaired by Gwen Darian of NPAF and Reggie Tucker-Seely of Zero. We are excited to kick off this season in a unique way. Instead of our normal dialogue type of format, you'll hear a monologue from the guests for the first two episodes, where they will share how the impacts of sexism, ageism, homophobia, and structural racism have really influenced healthcare access and delivery for them. Here are their stories. My name is Hanan Abdallah. I'm 31 years old, and this is my story. I have been a caregiver for my mom, whom is just my pride and joy. I'm a first-generation American, so she actually came over here from Morocco when she was in her 20s. She has an elementary education, so her literacy, even from her own home country, has been a barrier. But of course, coming here in a new country has been difficult, right? Understanding the cultural differences, the societal differences, the healthcare differences, all of those things have been challenges that she's had to overcome. She met my dad, they fell in love and the rest was history. When I was two years old, my dad was actually admitted to the hospital and was diagnosed with heart failure, ended up getting an open heart surgery. So my mom, obviously still being new and in the States, had to start to deal with the healthcare system at a young age and with two young babies. So one of her greatest fears was that she wouldn't have a support system in a country that didn't necessarily understand her and that she didn't quite understand yet because she had a quite a big language barrier. Thankfully, my dad did make it through that. And throughout the years, she has just always supported and cared for our family. So I've been able to watch how she's navigated and even advocating for my father and asking the hard questions and pushing back. And I think that has certainly bled into how I, I now advocate for my family and how it is important for me to communicate or translate the things that I know are important for us from a cultural standpoint, but also from our value standpoint. So just to fast forward here, my dad passed about five years ago. My mom and my father had obviously a very strong connection. They've been married for over 20 years. My dad was the one that was going out and working. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and also ran a daycare. And I've just noticed that their dynamic was very dependent on each other. Obviously, when she lost her biggest support system in terms of dependency, she needed someone else to lean on. And of course, I I was that person. Like I had to be that person to step up and help her with whatever she needed. And that was a big shift for me. Being in my 20s and just coming out of college and trying to navigate my career in my world. That's kind of where our story began in terms of caregiving. I've always cared for her. I've always supported her, but 
it's become more of a dependent relationship within the last five years. She was finally able to start working on her own care and starting to identify the things that she needed to work on for her health. Even in my previous experiences, I would always go with my dad to his appointments as much as I could. And same thing with my mom. We would always show up for each other. And a lot of that had to do with our language barrier. My dad was a little bit more fluent in English, but my mom, her ability to just talk about her pain was very difficult. I remember even just a couple of years ago asking her, no, where is the pain? How does the pain feel? And it was really hard for her to even talk about that. And I've noticed that just in, in my experience with different healthcare providers, that there wasn't really a desire to slow down, to speed up. So being able to ask those specific questions versus just trying to check something off of a chart. And I was in the room, right? And so I was kind of a third party watching the interactions go back and forth. I made sure that if she had a question, she asked that question, but it did feel a little transactional. Um, My mom has had some cataract and some orthopedics issues. Last year, she was talking about shooting pain up and down her leg, some in her lower back. And we would go from ortho to ortho and scan to scan. She was very patient through the process. She went to physical therapy, did all the things that she was recommended. And we found that it was not successful long-term. It almost felt like I was taking my healthcare providers through a vetting process as I was taking my mom into the office because I know long-term that is what is going to help her heal the most is when you're understood the most. Just being able to go from one doctor to the next and having her not feeling heard about the fact that something is still hurting after getting the suggested treatments grounded my gears. I really wanted different care for her because she deserved the care that she's been giving to others this entire time. So I started to seek out support from folks in my community that have been rocks in my life because we don't have family locally and everybody is pretty much out in Morocco and Sudan. I definitely have found family in the States and that has been the support that has helped me really I ended up talking to a good friend of mine, Cynthia Engineering, and they suggested Dr. Miok, who's an incredible chiropractor out here in Northern Virginia, somebody who was willing to listen, understand the full scope and history, and even our cultural differences. She took the time to understand our relationship, my mom and myself, and where I was in terms of our caregiving relationship. She asked questions about my life and what my schedule looked like. And so when she sees me working in the doctor's office, she checks up on me. And she also specifically asked if there were other transportation services that could help supplement that. I realized that she was leaning in to try to understand how she could best support us holistically, our ecosystem as a relationship. Her desire to to physically pull out a spine and point out what she was talking about. Dr. Mio explained some things two or three times over. She spent almost two hours with us just in a consultation, not knowing if she would be able to really input us as a patient. That mattered so much to me. That was a big value for her was that her patients would understand the why behind the what And it made that experience so much different and it contrasted how I now expect for my healthcare providers to not only show up for my mom, but also to show up for myself and my community around me. So that has been such an incredible experience just in the last year because 
if I'm honest, that wasn't an experience that I had seen before. But as soon as you know what the standard is, you now want everything to rise to that, right? And you now know of the questions that you should be asking. You now know the expectations. So if anybody is out there and identifies to my story, my goal for you is to find advocates that can support your journey, that know what your where your heart is and where your values are, and lean into support systems that can really make the experience of caregiving a little bit more seamlessly and more beautiful. So my name is Hanan Adala. And this is my story. My name is Dr. Arthur Pope. I am originally from Chicago. I currently live in Philadelphia, where I am an emergency medicine physician at the University of Pennsylvania. I did med school in Chicago, and I did residency at the University of Chicago, where I served as chief resident. I identify as a Black gay cis male. And this is my story. Being a Black gay male in medicine, I'm already a rarity. And so there are often times where I feel as though I have to hide a little bit of myself just out of fear of how others may treat me. And in particular, I've had a few instances, and this has happened more than once, where I've been called a homophobic slur that begins with the letter F. And the most recent incident happened here in Philadelphia. I was seeing a patient who needed to be evaluated by our psychiatry team. The patient was kind of being a little hedgy and not giving a lot of information. And so the psychiatry team asked if there's anyone in the family that could be contacted. And initially the patient refused to provide any of that information. And this is very common that we will call family to ask collaborative information to make sure that if we discharge this person, they'll have a safe place to go, or there's somebody else who's seen them recently to make sure that they are not concerned about their behavior. So I happened to mention to the team, I said, well, you know, this person's sibling is listed as an emergency contact, I would reach out to them. And so they did. And the team called me back and said, we talked to the sibling. The sibling says, the patient gets like this when they're upset. They are not concerned that they're going to harm themselves or anyone else. And so they went to see them and they said, okay, they're safe to discharge. And when this patient was being discharged, the first thing they did was go up to the nurse and use an explicit saying, you know, why the F did you call my family? I told you not to do that. And the nurse explained like, hey, you know, we have to call for your safety. And then she goes, well, I told that F doctor not to call my family. And so I'm kind of sitting off to the side. And it was interesting because I had just told a story to my team about how this happened to me in residency. Maybe like 10 minutes before that, I was like, this is what's happened to me in the past. And so for for that patient to do it, it was kind of like shocking. So I kind of just stayed in the room. And at that point, the nurse, I don't think she knew what to say, but she was just like, hey, security, we need to escort this patient out. So security starts walking the patient out. I go to a different part of our emergency department where there are people sitting sort of in chairs and I can discharge them from there. And the patient walks up to me, even though security is supposed to be escorting them out of the ED, they allow them to walk up to me. And the patient says, are you still on duty? And I said, yes. And she was like, again, she used expletive, like, why did you call my family? And I said, okay, you need to go because I'm trying to take care of other patients and this is inappropriate. And then she called me the F word again. So at that point, this was in the middle of a room with a bunch of patients. There was also a nurse that was there who I'm pretty close with now, who kind of was like, what is happening? 
And I told security, I said, you need to get her out of here. This is inappropriate. Why did you allow this to happen? And so at that point, it kind of took me out of my character because this is the second time now I've been verbally assaulted by this patient. And I was very upset. In that moment, it was just kind of devastating that, you know, here I am trying to maintain my professionalism, but at the same time, I'm being verbally assaulted at work and nobody knew what to say. People were very supportive. They understood like why I was upset, but there's sort of nothing in that moment that I think people knew what to do. And I'm still working. This is only an hour and a half into my shift. So it took me about 30 minutes to sort of calm down because I was so upset about what happened. And I just had to go back to work. But one of the nurses come up to me and she said, I'm so sorry that happened to you. You know, I wish I could have done more. There is a way that we can file grievances for patients. So we can, what we call a safety net, we could put in information saying like, this patient caused this scene in the emergency department, you should know about it. That doesn't necessarily mean that they can't come back, right? It may just put a flag in their chart saying that they may escalate and you may need to be concerned. And I'm not necessarily saying that patient needs to be fired, but because sometimes we can terminate care. But as emergency medical physicians, we cannot refuse to see anyone. We have to make sure there's no emergency. There's a whole law in TALA, which has recently come up with abortion. And so sometimes that makes me feel a little nervous, you know, that I may encounter this patient again and sort of what the interaction will be going forward. After I filed sort of the grievance, I did get a call from one of my coworkers who's sort of like over that committee. And she just called to check in on me and say, I'm really sorry that this happened. I just want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So a lot of people checked in on me and I, and I felt really comfortable and great about that afterwards. I just think that we still have a long way to go in terms of helping our allies to understand kind of what we're going through and also how they can help to de-escalate situations like that. And I think in medicine, we're sort of not taught those things in medical school. We focus a lot on patient care and how to interact with patients. And there's always these talks about the ideas of like, if you have a female colleague who is being harassed by a patient, you should say something, right? But there's never any lesson on what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? If you've never experienced that before and know how to use your words correctly to sort of de-escalate that situation, you will get frozen, right? I've been in that situation where you may have heard things and you're just like, oh, what am I supposed to do? I did have incident residency where I went and stuck up for the resident and said, no, this is inappropriate. But that takes years of learning and training and being comfortable and being able to do that. And so I think one of the things that could help is if we start early in medical education, integrating these into everyday sort of scenarios. Like we have these situations in which we do standardized patient care or standardized patient scenarios, and it's an actor, right? Like that's an easy way to sort of integrate this because then people can act it out and they know kind of what words to use and what to say and how to help their colleague in this situation. So that would be one solution I would think about. And I know that there are people who are actively involved in sort of doing this work. I'm Dr. Arthur Pope, and this is my story. I'm Sandy Sefian. I live in Chicago, and I am a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I'm a historian of medicine and disability, and I'm a 55-year-old woman with cystic fibrosis. And cystic fibrosis is a pretty much a multi-organ disease, but primarily affects the lungs and pancreas. And this is my story. So my story centers around gender equity issues, 
related to healthcare and clinical research, and the need for physicians and other providers to really, really listen to their patients. And I'm sure listeners here are nodding their heads and saying, yes, <laughs> we need our physicians to really listen to us. So my story starts around 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more by now, when I noticed that every month I was getting more congestion, uh, lung congestion, sinus congestion. I was getting really, really bad headaches in one eye that were extremely painful. Uh, I was having some GI issues, but the most debilitating part was really the coughing, which exhausted me. I had a lot of fatigue and the headaches that I thought was sinus headaches at the time. They were migraines. So I went to a neurologist. I finally told my CF doctor, I lived in New York at the time, and she really took me seriously and said, I have a feeling these are sinus migraines. We don't really have any research on this, but other women have told me that this is happening to them. You're the first person that's really putting it together and questioning what exactly is happening. But, you know, hey, you're not you're not off track, I don't think. Um, and so she and I talked a lot. I had just gotten my master's of public health and she and I talked a lot about maybe doing a study that looked at this. And at the time I was using a period tracker to track these symptoms because I figured that was the only way to really show that they were cyclical. Then I moved to Chicago and my next doctor who was a man, didn't take me as seriously and is it sort of the kind of person who if there's no clinical evidence published then it doesn't exist he basically said i don't know what to tell you there's been no research on this we're out of luck and i felt dismissed because i had the data in my period tracker so i knew that it was cyclical but because there was no publication it wasn't taken seriously, or I felt it wasn't taken seriously. And basically I said back to him, cause I'm pretty outspoken. I don't really care if there's a publication, to be honest with you. What I care about is I have these symptoms and I am telling you that they are related, that my CF symptoms are related to my menstrual cycle. And I am telling you that. So there's empirical evidence sitting right in front of you. And that's what you need to listen to. And so because I didn't get answers and I continue not to get answers, I then went to a colleague of mine who was also a very good friend who works in women's health research. And I said, hey, what do you think of this? Like, am I off? There's no answers. And so she thought about it. She said, look, I don't know. But she didn't dismiss me. She said, you know, there's not a lot of research or knowledge about the connection between chronic illness, specifically CF and the menstrual cycle. But many years later, around five years ago, she came to me and said, hey, I want to do a patient-centered outcomes research grant around women's health issues and CF. She had worked at the CDC and had been asked to do some safety work on contraception and CF. And she remembered our conversation and we kept in touch. So she and I wrote a grant and it was funded to get together women with CF 
to talk about different women's health issues and formulate research questions that were important to us and priorities. And so we did that. We still are doing that five years later. And one of the priorities, of course, was the menstrual cycle because, of course, I was not alone. So she and I and many other people about three years ago, I'd say, started on a grant application to propose a study where women would track on a period track their CF symptoms to see if we could show that it was cyclical. So we are finishing up that grant and it's been really incredible. We did interviews of women. The other thing that's happened in the meantime is that this way that we've gathered women to talk about women's health issues, I then wrote a grant with NPAF to think about how we can do this with breast cancer. And so for the past two years, we've been doing this with women with breast cancer and again, have formulated some amazing questions and priorities that then some researchers that we've gathered are translating into research studies. So I feel really glad that in the end, women's priorities for research are heard and are being acted upon. And I'm really glad that I took this problem and turned it around to really promote gender equity in clinical research and give women the voice to determine what is being studied. Hopefully it will end with some contributions to both research and to healthcare and sort of provider patient communication in the clinic. We know our bodies and we should be taken seriously when we say, listen, we think there's something going on because we may not be right, but many times we are. I'm really proud of this work that we've been doing for the past five years to move this project forward. I'm Sandy Sefian, and that's my story. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.